internet. <laughs> my name is Matthew Kroll. And this conversation can serve no purpose any longer. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. What year is it? What What year is it? It is 2018. Uh, it is 2018. The movie came out in 1968. That is, yep. So we're 50 years. When will then be now? When will then be? I think Soon. we're catching up. We're yes. slowly catching No, no, we've passed 2001. Yeah, sure. Okay, the reason- I was making a Spaceballs <laughs> reference. I'm sorry. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast. I don't know where you've been. We don't uh, know where we've been. But we're doing a special episode this week because uh, this week is going to be the 50th anniversary re-release of 2001 A Space Odyssey playing in 70 millimeter engagements throughout uh, America, uh, Los Angeles, New York. So if you live in one of the smaller cities, it might be a little bit difficult to get to. But the reason this was prompted on is that 2001 A Space Odyssey is just having a special 70 millimeter restoration at the Cannes Film Festival presented by none other than uh, Christopher Nolan, Ah. uh, who cites it as one of his favorite movies. he talks about that scene, you know, the Blue Danube scene, the the, the spaceships docking for the first time. He says, uh, I, I must have watched that scene at least 20 times. And every time the space station enters that shot, it moves me. The emotional impact of this film has a direct uh, uh, has more direct is more direct than empathetic. Uh, you travel through the Stargate yourself and you're in there with it. Um, and he says that this film has uh, has amazing multiple viewing capa- uh, capabilities. So. With that in mind, I thought we should revisit this film, but I wanted to do something a little different this time around. What did you do? Which is awkward because we've been sitting here with a third person in the room (laughs) during that entire long introduction. But one of the things I'm interested in is is I think in film criticism, we tend to to basically live amongst our our own circles. We we only talk about films with film people. I don't know what Uh, you're talking about. (laughs) And uh, we have tried this before, and we've done this very successfully with, uh, for example, Jamie Walsh came on uh, our episode about Phantom Threads, a fashion yes. designer came on to talk about a fashion film. And I wanted to bring an astronomer in. So joining us today is Dr. Jana Gursovic, uh, an astronomer who works uh, primarily at the American Museum of Natural History. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, I used to work at the American Museum of Natural History. Now I work as a data scientist. Okay, so tell us a little bit about how you got involved. Well, well tell us a little bit about your work. First and yeah. foremost, hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Good to be here. Shahir gets so excited about our guest. I got excited. That, that he does not take the time to greet. And how are you this morning? Good, how are you? Good, we're doing this very early. Yes. But now the human part of interaction is done, Shahir. I'm going to go complete Hal there on this entire conversation. Right. Good, so good, it's going to be all data for me. <laughs> I wanted to reach out to you because uh, because of your, your your work, but could you tell us a little bit about uh, where you know what it is you do now? I think I think this is going to be fascinating because we're such you know like film buffs, and and then we don't have any interaction with anyone outside of that world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was working as an astronomer, uh, I was studying dwarf galaxies, okay. so they're still very large, um, but very small compared to our galaxy, um, the Milky Way. So only uh, one thousandth or even uh, less the mass of our galaxy, and they're kind of mysterious because we think there should be many more of them around our galaxy than we actually observe. So part of what I was doing was looking for new dwarf galaxies um, in the general region of our galaxy. What's the what do you extrapolate from studying dwarf galaxies? What is what is there to be learned? From yeah, studying dwarf galaxies? so um, so there's a mystery about um, dark matter. We don't know what this is, but mm-hmm. we see its effects in gravity. So um, galaxies would have formed differently if there weren't this mysterious 
this unknown stuff out there that's um, increasing the mass of, of all the galaxies that we see. Um, and so we can run computer simulations and see how different sizes of galaxies form. And um, what those simulations tell us is that there should be lots of these little galaxies if the other things that we um, we know to be true about dark matter are true. And so, um, so yeah, it's just, it's kind of accessing these questions about this unknown stuff. Right. Maybe it's a particle that hasn't been discovered yet. Maybe it's, you know, a different type of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but there's a lot of questions around that. And so um, by looking at how the dwarf galaxies move and how they're structured, you can kind of um, get a little bit better of an idea of what's going on. You've also written a book, mm -hmm. uh, which I just read, by the way, uh, The Vacation Guide to the Solar System, um, which was kind of, it's an odd thing, but it's, it's, it's absolutely delightful. Uh, it's essentially a travel guide to the, to the Milky Way. Yep. Is, that, is, that, is that a exactly. good way to keep it? It's like, uh, it's written like a travel guide. So you've got a chapter for each place you might visit. Um, and what we're trying to do is instead of kind of looking at a planet from the outside, we want to uh, imagine what it would be to actually stand there, for example, if you're you know, going to a planet where you can stand. Sure. Yeah. Um, and what you would see and what you would experience actually going there. And and the 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 interesting thing here is that it's full it's filled with facts and sort of sort of fun data points, but it's actually it's told in a way that like yeah what how you'd stand it. And most of the time, I was terrified. You know, like, like <laughs> yeah, space is not a very friendly place. No, human just, life. Yeah, space is terrifying. <laughs> I have enough. Um, I have enough earthly fears, but when you really, I have what I call my sort of circle of of, of nightmare, which is like oh here we are on our little planet. Well, we kind of understand what's going on. Okay, but really outside of a certain area, we have no idea. We can kind of guess. Oh my God, there's infinite space there's infinite space there could be anything there that means there possibly is anything there and now you know what i'm too small i'm back to the beginning <laughs> like it's it's a it's a, a a circle of fear i'm very familiar with space is terrifying <laughs> it really is it really is and it's it's not necessarily your uh, your average vacation no no <laughs> although although one point you do you guys do make in the introduction to the book is that there are there has been recently entrepreneurial progress in you know for example elon musk and um um uh, jeff bezos mm -hmm. as well into into like pioneering space travel as a much more accessible uh, thing. It's obviously not. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's getting there. Um, I think you know we'll see that in our lifetime, um, and it's not it's not an easy thing. So I think it it really um, underscores how space captures people's imagination, right? That we're trying to send people there, even though it's completely impractical in yeah. every way, almost in a, in a leisurely fashion. <laughs> yep. It actually, when it, just a real quick jump to two thousand one, when I was rewatching, and I was like, this space flight is empty, and it is so expensive to do. I'm like, this there was no way this would actually run. I don't care how. <laughs> How many pairs of grip boots they were selling. I don't know. I, I was like, I was thinking of the actual uh, financial implications of doing just the, the one trip to the space station. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, this, they wouldn't, they never launched that. Then. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and just to, uh, to, to sort of make the distinction as well, as an astronomer, a lot of your work is physics, math, um, data, data analysis. Mm -hmm. But do you ever, I mean, astronomy is a kind of culmination of basically those things combined with this desire to understand the what's up there. Do you ever want to go up there? <laughs> I'm afraid of flying an airplane. Right. Okay. <laughs> but I, you know, I think even so, if I had the opportunity, I would have to take it. Yeah. Right. right. Because it's just such an amazing experience. Yeah. And have you ever? Cons I mean, because uh, making the jump from astronomer to astronaut is, <laughs> yeah. is 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 quite a is quite a dramatic one. I've mm -hmm. I've been watching uh, all of uh, who's the latest astronomer who was posting YouTube videos, Captain Tom. 
I've gone blank on his surname. Uh, fr- from the space station? Yeah, from the space station. I've just been. His wa- name is Tom. I remember. Oh, Tom, uh, Hadfield. Hadfield. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. Captain Hadfield. Mm-hmm. I've been watching all of his videos. I mean, does that kind of doing data uh, analysis from up there or, or running experiments up there has that ever kind of interested you oh or? yeah absolutely it yeah. Would interest me um yeah i mean i think even the thing that really captures me about being for example uh, in orbit is how all of these ordinary things become extraordinary right like yeah. there's a video um of commander hadfield like wringing out yeah. a wet washcloth and the way it acts is just so compelling yeah it sticks um, to your hand different. right yeah, yeah, it just kind of creates this bubble around the washcloth. <laughs> and, and there's, you know, a million examples of these um, where you're just taking the everyday into space and it becomes extraordinary. So I'm going to throw out all of the, all of that amazing work that you've been doing. <laughs> Way to go. And then ask you dumb questions now. <laughs> <laughs> and the dumbest one is, what is your Desert Island movie? Like, isn't it, and yeah. and uh, there is a point to this question, but the, the point being that that I think – at some point for you, your your imagination must have been sparked about the about space. And I'm curious if mov- maybe movies wasn't the thing that did it. Maybe it was books. Maybe it was painting. Maybe it was just looking up into the stars. But I'm curious if movies did play a part. It was. It, I, mm. I can directly mm. trace it back to okay. movies and television. Sci-fi was what got me interested in space. Um, and so, you know, I didn't, you know, my family wasn't particularly, you know, interested in science. Um, but I was I was a huge trekker. Yeah, <laughs> Star Trek next generation yep. yeah. all the time um and uh, my desert my desert island movie was i was thinking yeah. uh, of what it would be i realized i spent an entire summer in middle school watching the star wars trilogy uh, every right. day i would wake up in the morning i would go to the basement i would <laughs> i would put in the first star wars movie you know i'd, I'd break for a blt for lunch i'd right. watch the whole thing over and over again like this this repetition yeah. and it really it really captured me um yeah. so i think you know my desert island movie would be Empire Strikes Back, uh, um, even though it's it's kind of like a darker yeah. one. So maybe it's not the best choice for keeping positive in a desert island scenario. <laughs> um, but but I feel like it's it's the one that I you know it's a comfort to me because I have that history with it. Yeah, so I could watch it over and over again. That's what we've been finding a lot with when we ask people the desert island question. Is it doesn't so much have to do. It has to do with the way a movie makes you feel, and and a lot of that is your experience with it either as a child or the first time you saw it, et cetera. Uh, my Desert Island movie was Masters of the Universe. <laughs> yeah. Which, which I actually is, think plays in the same way. In, in, it, a, in a little bit. Yeah. It, it kind of does, um, which, you know, is is a totally, I mean, way even more ridiculous than Star Wars is ridiculous in its own. And, and Shahir's yours was? Uh, if a Fake, which is a sort of slightly obscure documentary. Ba- by Orson Welles. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's these things where it's like, you you need to be able to ingest it if it's the only form of entertainment you have on an island. <laughs> you have to be able to ingest it comfortably again and again and again. Uh, so I think Star Wars is an excellent choice. Empire Strikes Back in particular. It, 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 it's it, arguably the best of the Star Wars to date. I would. Do you, do you, I mean, do, I would agree. Now, as yeah. far as modern science fiction go, like what what what's kind of captured your attention recently? Um, you know, I haven't watched as much exactly. as I would like to. Um, but I have been watching Lost in Space, and I've been pleasantly uh, surprised. Yeah. On, on I have high, yeah, I didn't have high expectations, but I'm enjoying okay. that. I hear the robot is particularly sexy. It's weirdly sexy. Yeah, this is this <laughs> well, is like me. Like designed like from a like a new tablet is sexy, or like like a no, actual, it's a robot. You know, the, no, I know, the, but I'm saying like there's tech that's sexy, and there's but mm-hmm. then there's. I'd well, say both. Okay. All right, why not? <laughs> I think he's got a sexy butt, apparently. Like, it, there are memes all over the internet about the robot from Lost in Space. Huh. Is he just called The Robot, yes. or has he got a name? Well, he was. 
can't think of a name other than yeah. The in robot. the show, he was just robot. Yeah. In the original, in the yeah. in the original series, <laughs> but I haven't watched that in a long time. And then there's obviously the Matt LeBlanc, Matt LeBlanc driven vehicle. I think it was in '96. Yeah. yeah, of uh, Lost in Sp- what's Gary Oldman. Was Dr. Smith? There you go. How is Parker Posey as Dr. Smith? <laughs> I think she does a great job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, 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 She's creepy. I, yeah. <laughs> I, she, I, I thought that was a perfect role for her. So I'm, I will I will get to that series uh, as soon as I can. And one little last side note is the as the Star Wars franchise has continued on, are you kind of, you, do you enjoy the new ones? Are you kind of? I do. I watch them. I yeah. watch them once. It's yeah. kind of a tradition. I, I go home for, you know, for Christmas. I'll watch it with my brother if it's coming, you know, yeah. when it's coming out then. So. But n- not a, it's not the same kind it's of. Not do, do you still? watch the original Star Wars like in, a, in that sort of way? I, you know, I, I haven't in a while. I should go back to it okay. and see how it is. Um, but yeah, it just it doesn't capture me the same way. I think it's a little hard actually because it's harder for me to get into science fiction now. Because like, you I know have, too much? You yeah. know all the rules. <laughs> yeah. it, it is. Like it has to, it does have to have um, a certain level of like accuracy for me to be able to suspend my disbelief now. More so than the ones that I did watch when I was a child because, um, you know, I just take those in and, and for some reason I still can watch those and it doesn't bother me. Um, but I do I do have like the accuracy problem, I would say. <laughs> that's, that's a good problem to have. Emotional ties I found is with films can sort of um, beat the uh, any sort of inaccuracy or even even. I'll even go one step beyond like you've obviously learned all the inaccurate things that are in most science fiction films more more so than the average film goer. But like even if a movie breaks its own rules that it sets. Yes. Uh, yeah. I can forgive if it's a film that I've been watching since mm-hmm. I was eight. Yep. But newer films will be like, no, <laughs> this is not OK. And I will I will throw it under the bus. Uh, yeah. So uh, with all that said, actually, Star Wars is a great reference because uh, I, I want to just briefly mention the fact that I when I went and saw 2000. 2001 a space odyssey for the first time i think i was about 20 years old and it was playing in 70 millimeter uh around the corner from me and and i i brought like four or five of my friends along and my whole precursor and i hadn't seen the film at, the t- at that time but my whole precursor was oh this is the film that inspired star wars so everyone i took to it was oh, like no. expecting star wars and let me just say half of them walked out during the intermission and there was only a couple of us left behind but matt tell us what with that in mind tell us what 2001 a space odyssey stanley kubrick's 1968 film is about sure i'll just jump over to the imdb page real quick and read the the best (laughs) the best uh basically synopsis i can think of of this film here we go Humanity finds a mysterious, obviously artificial object buried beneath the lunar surface and with an intelligent computer, the HAL 9000, sets off on a quest. Accurate. <laughs> Somewhat. Uh, clinically. Clinically accurate. Uh, side note, when I watched this again, speaking of just going back to the George, the, the Star Wars, I was like, every time it showed the interior of a spaceship, I'm like, oh, gee, George, where'd you get all your stuff? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it looks so, I mean, everything looks like uh, the, the, the hangar bay looks like the hangar bays in the Death Star. Every possible control surface is the three big rectangle buttons on the black glass. Like, it's all very, like... We we see where the where the yeah. uh, spark came from. I think uh, for George Lucas, it was also it's more influential in THX um, than it is in Star Wars. Oh, like really? That was that when he when he watched. I mean, he was majorly influenced by two thousand and one as a student, and he said, "I wanted to make a film like that," and that's TH1, right. THX. Although it does carry over into Star Wars as well. Uh, I I wrote a kind of a different synopsis because I think I I felt like if if you're listening to this and you haven't seen two thousand one <laughs> A Space Odyssey, you might do that thing, which is which is what I did, and which we've just kind of like alluded to as well is go oh it's the precursor to star wars and it is nothing 
nothing like Star Wars no. at all. As as my friends learned on that one trip, like maybe a. I mean, I, this could mean a million different things. A spiritual precursor to Star Wars. I, I think certainly a visual influence. Visual. Let's go with that. Yeah, but but so what I what I wrote was that it, it, using a near operatic and musical structure, and I think that was really important. Mm-hmm. Two thousand one, a space odyssey tells an epic tale of humanity's journey from pre evolutionary apes mastering tools for the first time to mind bend, to a mind bending space voyage to Jupiter and beyond the infinite to uncover the secrets of a mysterious monolith which appears to, to, at key epochs of of human evolution. The film is the very definition of epic. Not only traversing millennia, but also across the entire galaxy, touching on human evolution, depictions of space travel, which predate our first journey to the moon, artificial intelligence and its implications, and a near hallucinogenic trip, which ponders the next stage of humanity. I think, like, I I, I just had to do that because I, I don't want anyone who's listening to this who hasn't seen 2001 A Space Odyssey think we're recommending the prequel to Star Wars. Right. I, I Okay. Understood. Understood. Yeah. Um, I want to jump back real quick. So I obviously uh, my quote was from the apes uh, Mm -hmm. in the very beginning of the dawn of man, as the font tells us, Uh, you said how they discovered tools. I was expecting and again, I hadn't seen this in so long, so I remembered the beats, but not so much the 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 minutia of what happens. I was watching it and I was like, oh, you know, they, they touch the monolith and then they, you know, they get the, this isn't the very beginning. This is much spoilers and it's, it's an old film. So if you haven't watched it by now, there will be spoilers sprinkled throughout this conversation. Um, I was like, oh, the ape is going to use a tool now and that's going to be great. And then I was like, oh, no, it's not really. A, I mean, it's technically a tool, but it's a weapon. He discovers how to use a weapon. And then I was like, this is reading darker than I remember when I watched it the first time. And I was very uh, I was a little bit taken aback because I was like, he's going to invent a thing that helps him or makes fire or something. And I was like, no, he just knows how to crush skulls now. And that made me a little sad. Yeah, I also didn't remember that that happened in the beginning. And I was watching it with a friend and her two year old. Oh, <laughs> And that part got very, very dark, and she was into it. Um, yeah. And we were like, oh, no, what have we done? <laughs> well, well, I mean, do you want to go around and just kind of describe, the uh, other than rewatching it this time, what was the first time, what was your memory of watching it for the first time? Because this is such an iconic, you know, like there's no way to like think about space movies and not think about 2001 in some capacity. Uh, Matt, do you want to go first? Uh, sure, because I think I have the maybe the least amount to say. I watched it once in college uh, after uh, a party. So okay. I was not in all of my uh, regular. Uh, <laughs> Although they do say taking, I mean, I'm, I'm not encouraging this at all. Taking no. drugs is the way to watch this movie. Now I have, well, I have a thing about that. Too. We'll get to that yeah. eventually. But I remember watching this because of all of my friends in, because I hadn't seen it before college, and they were like, "This is a super important film if you're into uh, science fiction or just sort of just sort of deeper meaning film." And I watched it, and I was like, "I get it." Like I get, I get why people have this. The 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 visuals and the technical side of it is what sort of grabbed me way more than the uh, w- w- the meanings behind the things, which I think are deep. But because it is such a, um, I guess, choose your own adventure in what the meaning actually is. Uh, I tend to not gravitate towards films a lot like that. And if they're made very well, like this film is, I'll, I'll latch on to the more technical side of things. So I just remember being like, this was made this year. This was made and they were able to do this. And they kind of guessed a lot of like 
at least in, from my limited experience, like how uh, a ship might land on a planet and like all the very sort of minutiae of the technology behind it, how an, an artificial intelligence would interact and have to deal with issues that it has based on, uh, you know, conflicts in, in data points it's getting. That's the stuff that grabbed me. But I remember sort of being like, it, it's, it's, it's too nebulous and it's too long. Okay. Uh, and and that I know that is not a popular opinion, uh, but from anyone. Uh, and so I think that's another reason why I hadn't watched it up until uh, yesterday again. Okay. Uh, so that's that's me. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll back off and uh, I'll hand in my nerd card right now. <laughs> Jana, how about yourself? Yeah, I watched it when I was very young. Yeah. So I I don't know. Must have been around twelve. Um, and I didn't get it. Yeah. I thought it was really really slow. Yeah. You know, I liked that it was set in space because I was in to that yeah but um i i think i just missed the entire point of the movie um and i hadn't watched it again until very recently and i'm so glad that i did because it was a completely different experience for me okay uh i think i think i kind of touched on what my experience was you know again i saw it that first time but i I think i was sort of um slightly fortunate which is that i didn't watch it on vhs or any or dvd or anything like that i actually went to the theater and i saw it a a, a 70 millimeter projection of it and um and i think you know like again i i think i'm with you guys on that in that in that sense that it did leave me kind of perplexed and I wasn't sure what to make of it, um, but I did. It definitely made an impression on me. And then I found myself kind of like a week later wanting to revisit it. And I did. And I watched it again on DVD, like you know, pretty soon after. And I, I've come to. It's not a movie I loved the first time. It's not even my favorite um, Stanley Kubrick movie, uh, but it's a film that I've come to love over over time, and 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 love a lot over time. And you know, I I do watch it regularly when I got a projector in my in my apartment. It was mm-hmm. the first thing I threw up on the projector. Um, I w- in in researching for this episode, uh, I reached out to it, it, all of our listeners. But oh, by the way, if you are a listener and you wanted to reach us uh, and, and and with your thoughts on two thousand one and space odyssey, you can email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. We should have said that earlier. Yeah, we didn't do the housekeeping. We we're did, too excited. We're too excited to jump in because we have an astronomer in the room, and I apologize <laughs> that we haven't asked you. We're, we're going to get specific about it, but I. <laughs> We but have an astronomer in the room, and we're asking her Star Wars questions. Exactly. <laughs> but I, 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 I started reaching out to as many people as I could about you know what their impressions of 2001 were, and basically the same question you use, like, what do people think of this? Because it is such a sort of enigmatic film. It's such a film that like uh, divides people that that you really have to bring your uh, a lot of yourself to the movie. And I, uh, uh, I found a person who who had actually seen 2001. In the theater, and in 1968, oh. uh, and and I got him to email us in. This is Brent from Pennsylvania, and he wrote us in and said that seeing 2001: Space Odyssey as a 10 year old during its first run in the spring of 1968 made a lifelong impression on me. It was rated G, and I was very interested in space and rockets. This was in the era when we stopped to class to watch a rocket uh, to watch rocket launches on a TV wheeled into the cafeteria, and I got my dad to take me. And I didn't. I don't think either of us knew what to expect. There were no endless trailers on TV promoting things, just small ads in newspapers. And as you know, at two and a half hours, the movie is long by 
today's standards for a G-rated movie. Uh, it was long enough to have an intermission, uh, which I wish some longer movies today would bring back. Uh, we saw the movie in a large theater by today's standards. Theaters had not created small screens with 100 seats or uh, less in multiplexes. Uh, the theater was mostly empty, as I recall, probably because my dad took me to a, mat- a matinee. And then he just, he goes on to describe the actual experience of watching the movie, which he uh, which I'll just paraphrase here. But when Hal tells Dave that he can't let him back in, I remember my dad snickered. He had a wicked sense of humor. Once the final chapter began, I was fascinated but totally lost, as most are to this day. I knew I was seeing something that had meaning, but I couldn't figure it out. And in our discussion after the movie, I was sort of relieved that my dad was also confused. But we both agreed that it was spectacular to watch. Uh, we did get that the monolith was advancing civilization somehow. And I later read Arthur C. Clarke's novel to get a better understanding of what I saw. Um, he goes on to mention that the that that, that experience uh, started a lifelong love of movies with him. I don't think uh, Brent is a filmmaker, uh, although he talked a lot about um, you know buying uh, high-end film gear so he could really enjoy the experience. And he does watch the movie once every year. Um, so, uh, thank yeah, you, Brent. Yeah, thank you, Brent. Thanks for emailing us. E- emailing us I always like, I, yeah, like <laughs> I like seeing like people's first experiences with the stuff we're talking, especially like in 1968. The That's in great. The and, and so, I think one of the important things with 2001 as well is to remember 1968, which predates the first landing on the moon and predates photos of of Earth from the moon. So even the first image of two, in 2001 is an entirely imagined image of Earth. Is that is that Yeah, and I I think it's amazing, you know, the it's shocking to me and I didn't appreciate this obviously when I first saw it is um how good it is at getting the feel of those images that would come later. Um and so we we can also talk about this later on, but like those those scenes uh, at Jupiter and the scenes of the Earth and and the moon are just a really, I think they capture what the real photos capture. Right. So, oh, oh so I was going to say, I really dug, and this is something I didn't pick up on the first time, but I think it, I think it took seeing so much space stuff that we see. I mean, even Star Wars Guardians, like you have these beautiful images of planets and very like crisp, clear things where you see like cloud formations and you can see some of the train and all that stuff. But like, I really liked in this this film in in a way the the planet shots or the from the moon or from wherever we're going felt a little bit more real than these super crisp zany color versions because it it there's one big light source mm-hmm. <laughs> it's probably real far away and it's just the from the from the angle that these things were shot and even beyond a sort of symmetry or, or geometrical like satisfying uh, thing the way they were a little bit like. I don't want to say overblown or or blurry, but it felt to me like I was looking at a thing that was difficult to look at, and that made it feel more real to me. Yeah. If I'm not I'm not saying it correctly, but it's it's the contrast to our polished space stuff now mm-hmm. and the way this was made and the way this was showed to us. I really liked it. Yeah, I feel like there's a starkness and also like a high contrast yeah. feel. Um, uh, that that really kind of dazzles you and is not what you're expecting, especially if you hadn't haven't seen it before. Um. So, well, I mean, now that you are, you know, like, like since your Star Wars day and now, um, now watching 2001 as a, as an, as an adult, I'm curious what you think about, I guess, maybe even a broad topic, um, how space is represented in film. Like, like, how how do you feel like, what do you think movies get right? And what do you think movies get so wrong? Yeah, I mean, I definitely pick up on a lot of accuracy things. So a huge one, obviously, is sound in space. Mm -hmm. Um, And I understand why 
why it's done. Like, it's so hard to have silence for long periods of time. Um, this movie's more comfortable with it, I think, yeah. than others. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, and what I really liked about what they did was they they did have sounds, but, for example, um, when he's traveling in the in the pod, um, you, you hear the sounds that would be heard inside of his suit. So you hear his breathing, um, and you have shots both from within the pod and outside of the pod. Both of them have the breathing sound, um, mm-hmm. which which obviously if you were outside from a perspective there, you wouldn't be able to hear it. Um, but it, it, it really, for me, it's, it's different than what you expect and that, that gives it a sense of realism. Yeah. So, and, and, and I think, you know, uh, one of the, the issue there is, uh, is that sound has no vacuum it is entirely in a vacuum. So there's no media for it to travel through. That's right. So, so you get those pressure variations that are hitting your eardrum, um, in, in space, in the vacuum, you don't have a medium through which those pressure waves can travel. Um, and so you wouldn't be able to hear it. You might be, you would be able to hear things, um, you know, if you could survive without a suit, for example, which you can't. Yeah. Um, but if you were on the surface of a planet with an atmosphere, um, there would be sound that could be trans transmitted through that or through liquids, um, mm. you know, whether it's water or, you know, if you have mi- liquid hydrocarbons on, you know, the surface, um, you could listen through that. Uh, one sidestep here. So since, you know, there's, there's been a ton of movies about space travel, uh, obviously in the sort of fantasy realm, you know, things like Avengers and Infinity War. By the way, your uh, your book actually really helped me during a scene during Infinity War because there's a major scene that happens on Titan. And oh. I just read your chapter about Titan. And so I was kind of uh, there, there's a scene this is a sidestep for Avengers. Here we go. I, I love that you're <laughs> but, making an Avengers aside. But, but there's a scene where one, one character is jumping up on Titan, and I was like, oh, I know why that happens. I know why she's doing that, because the gravity the gravity on Titan allows you to do that. And it was just through your book that that, that helped me <laughs> through that. Although I was wondering why they could, why they, everyone could breathe on Titan was kind of uh, odd oh, to no, me. Oh, no, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not, not a spoiler. But I, I, I'm, you know, like, obviously there's films like uh, Contact, Mission to Mars, Gravity. Did, has has anything, you know, kind of grabbed you recently? Um, NASA just did a poll of their favorite space movies and the movies that they really hate about space. I wonder if you have any opinions about movies that, you know, you kind of love that are just generally about space. Yeah, um, I really loved Contact yeah. um, because it was also one of those movies that inspired me. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, it's the most realistic portrayal of an astronomer, um, although she does do things like like put on headphones and listen to the radio missions, yeah. which, you know, radio, totally different than sound. Yeah. Uh, no astronomer would ever do that. Um, <laughs> okay. But we'll forgive it. It's fine. Um, um, yeah. But I think, you know, her personality and her worldview and the way, you know, she interacts and even things down to like the cabin that they went to mm-hmm. at the uh, at the large radio telescope looks yeah. exactly like the actual cabin that's there right. um, that observers stay in. Yeah. Um, so uh, contact is the Robert Zemeckis film with uh, Jodie Foster, who plays someone who who's researching Yeti, uh, the, the uh, Seti, yeah, Seti, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Yeti, Yeti, Yetis are yes. very different. Define the acronym. Sorry, it's a oh, uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah, not yeah. yelling for extraterrestrial. No. <laughs> no, no. Well, it could be. You know, we could try that too. Yeah. So uh, she's uh, Jodie Foster plays um, uh, a radio astronomer that um, detects. Uh, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hopefully, no, you've seen it by now. Yeah. Um, she detects a signal from an alien intelligence. Okay. And, uh, and the, well, I was going to say the example you use of like, no astronomer would sit and put on headphones and listen to like I, that. That's the kind of thing that when a movie works for you, uh, no matter what knowledge you have of sort of the actual accuracy or science behind it, 
the the emotion that that character is feeling is is real enough where the activity that is getting them there because it just needs to look or feel visually more stimulating than what an actual astronomer might be doing mm-hmm. uh that i love it when that when the feeling a film creates can transcend and you can forgive the moments of of inaccuracy and contact is definitely one of exactly. those. Exactly. And it also does a great job of capturing the excitement of discovery, I feel like. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, um, that's why it's, you know, I would say it's it's one of kind of my favorite actual astronomer portraying an astronomer. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, and what I, about, well, sorry, what about your least favorite? Yeah, what's your least movie? favorite? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Or something that just, <laughs> when you watched it, you're like, I'm trying to think of something I hated. Yep. <laughs> I don't, usually so don't I watch tell- it unless I'm pretty sure it won't completely annoy me. Can I, I just- tell you what NASA hated? Yeah, what, tell what me Na- what NASA hated. NASA, NASA astronomers were unanimously opposed to, and I was really surprised because I love this movie, was Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity. They didn't like it? Yeah, and it was weird because then I started reading the comments and it was things like um, like uh, seeing Sandra Bullock float in space without a suit on. Uh, not in space, but inside her, uh, inside the actual station. And it was it was things like that and then the amount of sound that they heard in space. I think, you know, it, it becomes one of those things where you you like the movie, but you dislike what it kind of represents, maybe? Yeah, the interesting thing for me, I thought Gravity did a couple things really well. Yeah. Um. So uh, there's a certain scene where she's tethered and she's moving around <laughs> and um, uh, the space station <laughs> is kind of being, you know, is in disarray. <laughs> um, and I thought it did a really good job of portraying the confusing physics of being tethered in a microgravity environment. And, and that's a difficult thing kind of to wrap your brain around. And I think that, you know, you, you look at that and you kind of like under, you, you get it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so there were, you know, there's a lot of like little things that are inaccurate about it. Like she moves between, um, I think the Hubble space Tele- yeah. telescope and the international space station and they're not in remotely the same orbits. Right. Um, maybe it's some future where they <laughs> moved them. I don't know. Um, but I think there's a, a lot of, a lot of things that gravity did well. Yeah. And, and I think it's also kind of maybe, Sometimes there's a thing where it's aspirational as opposed mm-hmm. to realistic. I think yeah. the the movie that they did that NASA scientists did love was uh, The Martian. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, because The Martian was kind of like uh, space survival. You know, like I'm going to science the shit out of this. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, uh, and uh, oh, and of course the Cloverfield paradox. Yeah, I'm they, sure they, they absolutely love loved. Paradox. They thought that was a pinnacle of scientific <laughs> accuracy and function. Um, I have an idea about why gravity might have been one that they didn't like as well. Is Gravity and the production behind Gravity made it very clear in their advertising and how they sort of put the the idea of the film out that this was going to be a highly accurate uh, science fiction depiction of, of these sort of mo- – obviously, it can't be perfect. But when you put your cards down and be like, accuracy, then everyone's going to come out of the woodwork and be like – Act like every glasses is going to be pushed up and be like, you know what? Hold on. This, 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 this. Like, so if you make, if you, you know, set your foundation on quote accuracy, people will come with sledgehammers. If you, if you put it in, if you don't do that, I bet you there's a little bit more forgiveness. So I can see why that would be like, listen, everybody just sit down for a second. Well, with that in mind, I want to take us back to 1968 and the four years before 1968 to kind of set the stage for 2001 a little bit. Uh, Stanley, uh, uh, another reason that 2001 kind of gets exalted into the popular culture is not least of which is that it's uh, made by Stanley Kubrick, you know, uh, one of the great 
uh, artist in almost any medium of our time, but 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 notably uh, a film director, you know, n- noted as one of the greats uh, of the 20th century. Um, and and in 1964, right coming off the heels of Doctor Strangelove, um, he decided he wanted to make a science fiction film. And in his words, he wanted to make a really good science fiction film because up until that point, you had sort of things like um, Journey to Journey to Another Planet or something like that, or movies that kind of like treated space uh, almost as a horror medium. You know, it was like the, the haunted house down the street and space was just that version of it. And he was, he was really obsessed and meticulous about wanting to depict um, uh, space as accurately as possible, even to the point of hiring NASA scientists to work on the film, which was something kind of unprecedented at the time, and, uh, and uh, hiring Arthur C. Clarke to write the script. And Arthur C. Clarke is actually an astronomer, or is actually a mathematician as well. So he has, a, he has sort of a major history in actually understanding the science as well as being a fictional writer. Um, and, and they did this unusual thing, which was that they wrote the screenplay and the book at the same time. Because uh, uh, Kubrick kind of hated the screenplay format, and he was like, "This is th- this film shouldn't be about following the rules of filmmaking. It should be about like create, you know, like following the rules of science and space." Um, and then an interesting thing happened, which was that the book and the film kind of diverged in two different paths. Um, the book essentially explains everything that's happening in the movie with, with you know, kind of direct monologues about the monolith does this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see this when you go through the door. This is what happens when you go into space. And, it, it, you know, even though the final act of the film, which is mostly hallucinogenic and feels like, in, in, you know, uh, a, a, a mushroom trip, the, the book <laughs> actually goes on to explain exactly what's happening in that sequence. So and and Kubrick then you know kind of actually had the film with voiceover explaining it. So the the when when we see the the bone flying up into the the sky that becomes a um, uh, a spacecraft, uh, there was actually a voiceover that that explained exactly what was happening. And it was like man had discovered tool, but the greatest tools were yet to come. And and these two and he did, and they do go on to say tool the tools will became weapons. Um, and Kubrick kind of decided halfway through, you know, as he was editing the film, I'm going to take all of that out and I'm going to take and I'm going to like turn this into a film where we want to use the the visual language of cinema more than we want to use the 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 written word to explain everything. We mm-hmm. want to make sure that 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 everybody uh, who's watching this basically has to has to interpret it, and and there is no interpretation that is wrong, and there is no interpretation that is finite in this film. And I'm curious with both of you, um, you know, we talked a little about the technical side of the film, but like, what does this film mean? Like, what is actually like, like, what do we get out of this movie? Uh, Matt, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to tag you in. I'm not doing this first. (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's what I was getting from it is that it's, it's telling a story of a development of intelligence and what i love about it is you're talking about how it's using the visual language it's definitely zooming out right it's telling a story that's even larger than human history right yeah and it's like larger than language to explain it right yeah. it's, it's using it's using something for more fundamental i think yeah than you know an explanation which would have been a completely different movie and i yeah. think that's that's really part of what makes it so special um is that it gives it gives you that space there to interpret it yourself but but i definitely am connecting it to this larger development of humanity um and even you know beyond humanity or before humanity Humanity, just just putting 
in context in this grand context um what it is to be human what it is to be you know conscious and sentient and and it does that it does that a couple of ways one one way is absolutely fantastical you know it introduces this object this sort of foreign monolith yeah this alien object this monolith which is which is a a a pure it's an invention of pure science fiction and it and it's a it's such a striking invention as well because it is uh it is nothing like say a viewer in 2018 would interpret uh, an advanced technological object it's it's entirely uh devoid of almost any visual technological um paradigm that we would understand and 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 it's sort of this clear block and then the second one is this very almost in a, in a way and i think this relates to your work now um, uh, is the is the depiction of hell, which is a sort of an intermediary step between humanity and and you know um, I'm going to borrow from Nietzsche here, but the the Ubermensch, which is what the the Star Child kind of relates to, and I, I I do that because uh, we he uses a a particular music track to 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 suggest that. But I I was curious. Oh, well, Matt, you you wanted to jump I, in. About I'm making the lots of faces and yeah. hands about the monolith, so yeah. I apologize. Uh, I think the monolith. Is I th- I think the monolith and th- what I believe the monolith represents is is done so perfectly in this film because the monolith you could you could look at this from so I don't think what the monolith represents I think is even outside of science fiction in general the monolith represents either a tool of God or God or some sort of force that drives um in this case humanity right and i'm sure it's driven other things i mean you could look at what films that have done this far worse like prometheus uh but or but you could it's i like this film's depiction of that because and without getting too much into religion or too much into even uh, uh the logic behind the science of there's most likely something better than us out there uh th- this simple rectangular um, onyx looking slab is so both striking and simple that you can really put any interpretation of what you believe whether that's religious, whether that's scientific, logical, like whatever mathematical you can, you can put your own, uh, I guess, onus on what that monolith represents. And yeah, it's the thing that causes all of the jumps that we do like it you can you can tie almost any origin story and pretty much make it make sense with that piece of stone or whatever that thing is and i thought that was a a, a master stroke in either script writing or filmmaking because that's going to make your audience in a in a very um uh out, out there sort of film that's something that i think every viewer no matter what your background can latch onto you see that you hear the music cues you're like that's something bigger than us and that's something that i think is uh is a hundred percent wonderful and and probably my honestly my favorite aspect of this entire film yeah i think it you know it evokes this strong sense of wonder and awe and and almost you know edging on fear yeah um and i think you know that's that's the the feeling you get when you're thinking about these ideas of how this happens how you become conscious you know how you know you evolve to it be a different being. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I, I really, you know, I was feeling those things strongly as I was watching it and, yeah. and having those emotions come up as you're kind of intellectually thinking about that process too, um, was a really special experience. Yeah. And, and what did you think about, um, about Hal? 
<laughs> I mean, because Hal, you know, almost uh, one of the things that the movie does really well as well is is repeated uh, motifs. And Hal almost has this sort of monolithic shape. He's this upward rectangular shape with a red dot in the middle of it. But but not beyond that, he's a kind of uh, some sort of evolutionary leap as well, because he we, we, we start pondering the question of his consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I, I was curious what you thought about that. I yeah. was astonished that it came so early, right? Yeah, um, 1968. Because, I mean, this is a time, if you look at the context, right, computers are these huge, like, room-sized things mm-hmm. that are so much less powerful than, mm-hmm. you know, all the computers that we have today. Um, and I think that that there's more and more anxiety because we are still learning how to relate Mm -hmm. to, um, to, you know, artificial intelligence to, um, to these, you know, algorithms that are strangely good at some things and strangely bad at others and, and how that's changing our world. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and that's, um, that's this huge thing we're dealing with in society. And yet here we are, you know, in in the late sixties contemplating what that's going to be. And I, and I think that's part of a contemplation that even NASA scientists weren't considering at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, like it's not something that they were thinking about for for a trip to the moon. They were. This is this is well beyond the reach of if you were to say I want to make a space movie in 1968. Um, you know, goes into and I, it's it's a it's Hal is oddly the most human character in the movie as well. He seems to be the most affected by. Um, uh, you know, the things that are happening around him. Everyone else is sort of a little bit cold and detached and their interactions are slightly, you know, like devoid of human empathy. Yet he is the one that is emotional and and that makes a decision that is that is strikingly human, you know, in, in sort of the self-survival mode. And, it, and, and his death scene is kind of the most oddly affecting. I, as he's kind of like losing his, he's slowly losing his intelligence and his capacity. I was like, I'm feeling really bad for Hal at this point. I'm feeling really affected by mm-hmm. by Hal's passing. And it's it's something again that is so striking again when you think about the context, you know, like 1968. Yeah, I feel like, you know, Hal is kind of in, inheriting the flaws of humans. Yeah. Um and also I found that the death scene really um really eerie, especially because um that was the lullaby I was sung when I was Baby. a child. Oh, yeah. no. And so it was just it gives me chills, right? Cuz it's like this I don't know, it's like tied back. <laughs> I liked every time it, it you know, he's he's singing the song and the I I'm a sucker for the when the computer dies, <laughs> and every time I it couldn't get any slower or deeper, it did, and then until it was just like a weird ominous like baseline, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, I think Hal is the only character I saw outside of the apes that experience any actual or that you see either in dialogue or feel sort of in how it is. Uh, it says something, uh, any emotion whatsoever, even. Even when in the second act, mm-hmm. when uh, the guy who goes to the the, the base before he goes Dr. to the Floyd. moon, Dr. Floyd, when he calls home to the daughter, I I was like, what? I, I didn't buy any of it. Like everything in that scene of that video call felt so robotic. Mm. And then the first time I actually felt like uh, any emotion from any character that spoke English whatsoever in this film was when Hal asked uh, either David or the other doctor, um, you know, how are you feeling about the mission? Are you worried at all? Or like it basically brought up the first doubt of anything because it, it's it's programming is obviously starting to conflict with itself. Um, that was the point where I was like, oh, there's there's something that's alive. 
Like yeah. nothing else felt like. I mean, they're, obviously they're alive. They're people walking around, but like emotionally connected at all. Mm. So uh, and then obviously when Hal does what Hal does, you I I connect. I don't know. I, I it's that I connect with Hal more in a weird way. That's and I don't know if I mean I'm sure it was on purpose. I just I wish I, every time I watch this movie, which has been uh, two or three times at this point, uh, I'm shocked how much I'm like, yeah, Hal, mm-hmm. like the, you got to do it. I mean, I get it. I don't know. I'm <laughs> yeah, and I think there's this idea, you know, thinking about how, you know, human society would evolve, that people get more rational, that we're kind of like, mm. that we can like rise above these passions that, you know, cause us to to fight each other and yeah. kill each other with bones and things like that. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, part of what it's saying is you, you can't really get away from that. Yeah, even even in our, in our evolution, in some sort of evolutionary leap, which how clearly represents he retains the kind of as you said the flaws of humanity um so side note coming back to dr uh dr floyd on the moon as well i think there there there's two things to think about there one is that you know like yes you could take this sort of philosophical reasoning about you know humanity kind of evolving away from from emotional thinking into more rationalized thought which means that all our interactions become suddenly cold and detached and kind of transactional in a way my favorite yeah which is you know basically how i live my life um but but the other thing is there the the remarkable thing if we think again about um something that I think the second act of this movie does um, really profoundly, and, and the film is broken up into four acts, and the second act is a, is a trip to the moon, is the second act opens with this, uh, this dance, the Blue Danube, uh, with a spaceship kind of like um, docking into, a, into a, an orbiting station. And it's done with this sort of playful glee by, by playing this Blue Danube song. And I think one of the things that we're, we're experiencing there is the joy of space travel. And the joy of space travel with Dr. Floyd, the thing that, we, that, that those scenes showcase that, again, 1968, we have to think about, is a Skype call. You know, 1968, a video call. It almost doesn't matter. I think, again, thinking back to Brent's email, uh, seeing this in 1968 in a movie matinee theater, it almost doesn't matter what's happening in the call. What's important is the call, is this video call back to the, uh, back to Earth. And I love that the film is kind of peppered with like odd odd amounts of detail in that call, which is like uh, it's an AT&T or Bell line call. It costs a certain amount of credit. $1.72. Yeah, $1.72 <laughs> that he has to insert in. And then also the other thing is, is like the immigration process into the moon where it's like you have to voice activate. You know, like, again, thinking about the context, it's like, the call, you know, he's just calling his kid just to say, hey, you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to miss your birthday. There's that weird line when she says, I'd like a bush baby. And you're like, oh, what does that mean? Like, mm-hmm. what is that toy? I was thinking maybe it was an off-brand Cabbage Patch kid, but I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it also might relate, you know, like the the sort of mirroring effect uh, where it might relate to kind of the, the apes that we saw in Africa before as well. Like a toy that kind of it, it's a symbol of like, you know, a, to- uh, a, a, a major evolutionary leap that has now become a commodity. Maybe. Maybe. Or, That's one way or to think it's about a throwaway it. line. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the technology, I think, uh, you know, some of it seems very natural to us, which I think is shocking, right? Yeah. Like the video call, the voice yeah. interface with Hal, the credit all, card. Yeah, yeah, it's all it's all just a part of our world now. We don't think of it as as future. We think of it as present. Yeah. Um. But I I really found an interesting contrast between the technology, which I thought was um, uh, so well projected into the future, and the fact that you're sending the past, like 
you're sending the 60s culturally yeah. to, to Jupiter, right? Like, yeah. like it's Which there's is, only guys there, like the way the family interact. Like there's so many cultural things that are yeah. so deeply in the past. There's only white guys there. Yeah, yeah. And, and even, again, the spaceship when it's empty and it's flying to the space station, mm. uh, the stewardess walking uh, or the flight attendant with the, with the with the grip boots and just sort of like this weird this weird like idea of 60s luxury while it yeah. was going on it, it felt very like it, it's i don't think i think watching it back then this is all highly effective i think watching it in 2018 i was i i was a little like well while that again the technical filmmaking aspect was great i was like i i I don't know. Like a lot of it felt wrong. Now again, that's just a sign of the times. That's not. That's mm. not. Uh, there's no way the filmmaker Kubrick at, at the time. I can't blame him for that. It's just now, and especially it's it's exacerbated by how long all of the shots actually are. Mm. Um, and I get the operatic pacing of it, but when you put those two things together for me, I I, I will say between those moments, I was just like, "Come on, let's just." I, I get I get it, uh, but again, it's that's just a time moving on into the future thing. Well, well, uh, in, with that in mind, I mean, how did you know? Did I think one of the criticisms that's been held held at this film is that it's boring. I mean, James Cameron was talking about. Um, uh, he was just talking about it this last week, I think, uh, in some press interviews for He's his new show. He's talking a lot. Yeah, he does. Um, but he, he was talking about how he loves the movie, but it has, uh, and uh, excuse my French, but he says the film has no emotional balls. <laughs> and and in fact, uh, a, a Russian filmmaker at the time, uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, uh, saw the film and said the exact same thing. And he and he made a film uh, years later called Solaris, which he basically, it's, it's, it's almost the Russian version of 2001, but he was like, I want to make this an emotional risen in experience um and and so i'm curious about you know like your responses to that uh you know like whether you thought the film was boring and i'm i'm what i'm doubly curious about is you had a two-year-old watching with you and what they thought of the film she was enraptured and i yeah. was shocked right yeah. um uh she really you know she was just identifying the moon and identifying the yeah. earth and yeah. and her mom is really into space too oh, well she's my co-author yeah, right. olivia uh, koski on the yeah. book um and so uh so she she really was into it and yeah. and was compelled by it and I think actually those long shots are something that you know a two year old can kind of absorb yeah. but I think you know the pacing of the film I found was kind of the medium reflecting the message because in some ways that's that's what space travel really is is like waiting around and everything you know in in lower gravity things you, you know humans move slower and that's just a natural reflection of the environment yeah uh, and I think that's what the movie is tapping into and and it's not and, and and I mean one thing so just you know to to my opinion is um, I, I definitely felt the length of it the first time I saw it but the thing to note is the movie's two hours and twenty minutes long which isn't that long like it's not Infinity War is twenty minutes longer than this thing sure and <laughs> you know what I mean so but it feels snappy but 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 I think the thing is uh, I was struck by watching it this time is actually how quick it moves <laughs> and 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 I was struck by because I knew that there are I, I guess now it's this thing whereas I know what the four acts are. And I was surprised by how quickly it jumps for those four 
4x really, really like really efficiently, and it does things by you know there's that magisterial cut um, that 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 is almost uh, it seems so simple now, but is such an extraordinary cut is the is the evolutionary leap that the film takes from bone to space travel, mm-hmm. and I've uh, I've shown this film to my two year old as well, and uh, but I've done this thing uh, I'm very uh, cautious with my two year old about. Um, showing violence on screen. So I'll jump over the monkeys hitting each other uh, because I don't want them to hit me. Um, um, But, but that uh, I'm always surprised by how transfixed he is by that cut. You know, he, he'll, he'll jump up and explain, you know, like uh, up and down about that cut. And then he, he, um, uh, the 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 scenes of the uh, of them going into the space station, he's absolutely transfixed by. It. And we, I remember, we, I showed him that the 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 whole Blue Danube scene and the and the stewardess walking around. And the next day, we visited an aquarium which had like a a porthole circular um, uh, window to look in. And he started trying to climb it like like the stewardess did. He started to try and do the upside down thing. So I was, I and I think that like comes to this thing that Kubrick. Um, was saying, which was that he, he, you know, uh, Dr. Strangelove, the film that immediately predates this, he said is, is a film, which is, uh, its impact is hinged on its dialogue, the mode of expression, the euphemisms employed. Um, and he said, 2001, on the other hand, is basically a visual, nonverbal experience. It avoids intellectual verbaliza- uh, verbalization and reaches the viewer subconscious in a way that is essentially poetic and philosophic. Um, and, and he says that, you know, uh, he goes on in that quote to describe the fact that he wants people who are astronomers to be able to respond to this film, but also people who have no experience to just bathe in the wonder of it. And 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 he does that v- visually. And I think one of the things he, he talks about, like, as that, quote comes to an end is that he thinks that this is the thing that that movies are kind of missing is this visual splendor that is purely something only cinema can do and he, and he 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 said with this film he really wanted to get into that and i i the things in this film that really profoundly excite me now maybe as i get older one of them is like the floating pin that thing yeah, is amazing cool. and have you have you ever heard of how they did that because no, like I'm curious. Yeah, you think about now visual effects, how would you do a floating pin? You'd do a CGI pin. And you know, the thing about that scene is that you've got a character walking towards the pin and it's floating, which is like, how are we going to do this entirely optically? And she plucks it out of the air. And so you're like, wait, how does this even work? Mm-hmm. And have you guys ever heard the story of how this was done? No. No. Sellotape. They built a giant rig with clear plastic sellotape. <laughs> And put the and put the and stuck the pin to it, and they they use this like uh, they had to get I think it was 3M or some other manufacturer of sellotape to give them like the spe- the special kind that they could basically rip off right before the um, right before the filming so it doesn't accumulate dust, and then they they just rotated it. They had two grips on either side just oh, ro- just rotating it in the air, and uh, she plucks it off that, and she plucks it off that, and which is how you can see through it, how the you know how you can have people interact with it. Wow, that's genius. Yeah. You know, that that's, 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 and that's the kind of like visual invention that, that just, it blows my mind more than almost anything CGI that I can think of. Yeah. And I love, I love the tiny details, like the, when it zooms in on the grip boots um, and things like that. And also, um, I felt like because it was made before you could, you know, do these, the imagery with computers, um, a lot of it was done with models (laughs) and, um, 
you get the illumination right. Yeah. So if you actually have a light source and it's far enough away so that the light rays are coming out parallel and you have, you know, representations of planets and moons, they're illuminated in a way um, that's correct. As and casting to, shadows. Yeah, and yeah, casting shadows. And that's something that if you're making it by hand with a computer, yeah. um, it's really easy to mess up if you don't think about what you're doing. Yeah, that, that space docking sequence is extraordinary. And, and I think the thing that I'm always ex- amazed by is is how real it looks and and yeah like it casts shadows and you and you see the light kind of interplay with itself and then the you know again Kubrick being the master filmmaker I know you kind of talked about it being you know slow but he's moving the camera so precisely and it is this wonderful dance between the objects and the camera and it's so delightful and you know like you said two-year-olds just love it. And I and I kind of like, I guess I'm in this stage now where I'm like thinking about how delightful that sequence is. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple theories on 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 both two-year-olds watching this film and the way that sort of adults sort of watch it now. I think, uh, and how uh, one of the quotes you had said, Shahir, was about how cinema is missing a lot of the stuff that this film does. Mm-hmm. Um, current day cinema. I agree with that, but I also want to... Uh, be cautious of saying that entirely because I do think while a lot of our big, you know, blockbuster knockdown drag out, you know, kind of like silly bullshit movies, uh, don't do enough under the hood to make them matter. Uh, I, I want, I want elements of the skill and the craft and the meaning of 2001. And I want my other elements too. And I want them together for this day and age, because I feel like, um, for, for this, this is a weird thing to say, and I and I, and I guess I will represent uh, a, a common uh, 2018, just going to the movies for fun, kind of not think too heavily about a thing. Which you can you can have fun doing both. Um, I think a child, a two year old child, can watch this and be enamored by it because it is a pure emotional experience, and they won't feel bored or or like they're wasting any time because their concept of boredom and time wasting isn't actually like there yet they haven't experienced enough media to really get that mm-hmm. uh i feel like and it's 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 the same thing you're, you're, you are what you eat or whatever you want to put it like that like my i digest uh, visually, a, a bunch of films, both heady and stupid YouTube videos all over the damn place. Like I'm, I watch a lot of stuff. So I've, I can, I outside of my own head as best as I can, I can witness myself, my, my attention span changing and not necessarily getting shorter, but the way I need, uh, interspersed things to keep me engaged. I've noticed has gotten smaller in, in novels I read and everything. And that's good and bad, depending on if you value speed or content. And that's a whole nother discussion. But I think the reason why now today I feel like this goes too slow is because I feel like, and especially even coming from an editing and a, and a, and a television production sort of background is I can, and this is, this is going to be a weird statement. I feel like I know the techniques now where I could get not a hundred percent of the emotional weight in that time period. I could probably get like 90% of that emotional weight in a quicker span of time. And it's what you value based on what you're trying to portray in the time frame in which you're trying to portray it. It's, it's, I feel like, uh, checks and balances, the, 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 the emotional depth you get, the value of it versus the time spent getting there for me personally, I feel like you could change those sliders a little bit differently and still have an incredibly engaging experience much quicker. Uh, it's, 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 
again, it's not saying I think it's it's that's a combination of those two things from the time period it was made and the time in today's sort of fast paced media environment. Like there's there's that's where I'm coming from it at. Now, if I was to I could also see myself being in a mood where I'm like, I need some esoteric like really like thought deep dive like i'm going to sit and and just just sort of melt into a film Mm -hmm. this is an amazing film to do that with personally i rarely get in those moods i have and and i have watched things like this in the past i also like i feel like in a weird way and again completely different genre fantasia is sort of the same type of disney film the disney film like but like it's the same sort of like it's a lot of dust floating around for a lot of times and like you it's it's orchestral and like you really get involved in the music and and so it's just a it's a genre of film that I don't think would survive today but I want aspects of it that I find important and meaningful uh to sort of I want more of this mixed in with current stuff. I don't think I want like another one of the like a super long cuz I don't think it would it would stand um it's that's a weird long mix. Well, well, how do you feel about the 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 well, boredom factor? Well, I, you know, as as you were talking, I was I was thinking about. So, um, uh, I used to work at the American Museum of Natural History, and they have the planetarium show there. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about what you're allowed to get away with in a planetarium show in sure. terms of just focusing on the visuals and like letting people kind of absorb what they're seeing and kind of understand it. Um, and I think you can get away with more there, and mm-hmm. that lets you do some really amazing things that can bring you into the space environment. And I think, you know, this is kind of in between what mm-hmm. you would expect from, you know, a, you know, a normal pace of a modern movie and that kind of planetarium experience where you're just kind of immersed and allowed to just exist slowly in a place. Yeah. Yeah. And there are movies today that, that, that uh, either draw influence from 2001 and will have that sort of, um, I'm not sure what the style is we're discussing here, but I think, uh, it comes down to this um, this sort of cinematic style, which is, uh, um, I think, a visual where an emphasis on visual information as opposed to auditory information, I think, is probably one way to think about it. It's not necessarily encompassing at all. But a film like um, uh, Under the Skin, uh, the Jonathan Glazer film, which came out a couple of years yep. ago, kind of really feels like 2000, you know, like a film Kubrick would make today. And I think it absolutely holds up. So we obviously have different tastes about this. Um, but the thing, I think the thing is, though, um, upon rewatching it, I, I was uh, not only was I kind of struck by how briskly it goes. And again, I've seen it many times, so maybe I'm kind of expecting that, but also how you kind of get four movies in one here and, and all four are different, are very different things. And I think that kept my interest going in sort of odd ways. So the first is the sort of like almost uh, Richard Attenborough style, you know, uh, nature documentary, which I, th- yeah. which I found absolutely fascinating. Um, not only for the technical things, because again, this was shot entirely in a studio, which you uh, can tell that was if I have to pick one visualization thing apart from this film is when you when you contrast the amazing space uh, photography basically or, or video or um, cinematography uh, with this 
especially when you watch it on a Blu-ray and it's super clear and like all this stuff. Maybe it's the transfer that gives it away. I don't know. But you like see the foreground rocks and you just see backdrop painting, backdrop painting. And it didn't take me out of it. But when you put it in contrast with the rest of it, and it's again, it's the times it was made. And you could also see really where they wanted to focus. Uh, you only have so much money in production and time and et cetera. I, uh, I'm going to just uh, go out on a limb here and say I actually thought it was extraordinary. Uh, that opening sequence and the way it was filmed was extraordinary because it reminds me of something at the American Museum of Natural History, which is the dioramas. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I went to the dioramas and uh, I'm sort of an amateur photographer and I snuck in with my uh, with my camera and tripod. So I sit up um, I sit up some like shots there. Not even a monopod, you bad boy. No, I took a, <laughs> took a full tripod in and I was just like and I had a friend with my uh, friend with me and I and we started taking photos in front of the dioramas and I was struck by what an extraordinary technique that was. And, and, and the thing about that, that opening sequence is it's done not with uh, matte paintings. Uh, it's done with rear projection. So those, the, the, the way it's actually done is it's a giant screen with film that they've shot in Africa projecting back on the actors. And the extraordinary thing I thought about that is unlike, say, green screen compositing right now, is the lighting is embedded. Mm -hmm. So you immediately get this lighting that reflects exactly uh, what's happening with the actors. And, of course, they used um, um, uh, sil uh, mime, mime actors to do, to do the monkeys. So I, thought, I thought it was just extraordinary. And I, I'm re-watching it, I was, I was just struck by how effective it was. Like, I really believed it. And then you have these scenes where, like, a leopard, and it's genuinely a leopard, so cool. attacks one of the minds. And you kind of, like, cognitively know mm -hmm. it's it's an actor in a suit. But but it attacks, and, you're like, and like, I, I'm kind of like, even now watching, I'm like, oh, my God. And then they put... Um, you know, they had the leopard eating a uh, eating a zebra as well. So, I don't know. I I, I found part in the dead zebra. Yeah, I found that whole sequence really extraordinary and really. Um, I I was kind of like, why aren't we doing this now? Because this is a way to do it that that like kind of mitigates all the problems that we have with green screen. I think it still reads, especially, and it might have to do with the transfer, it yeah. still reads flatter. Now, granted, green screen compositing, is 80% of what we see is pretty rough. Like, it's not, I, I, I'm, I'm always shocked. It's more shocking to me when I see a green screen composite that I'm like, I know that can't be real, but it's working. Yeah. Uh, this, to me, it just, and again, I think it's a, I, I I'm, I would love to see a film like a 35 millimeter or whatever or they're doing the 70. Is that what's happening? They're doing 70 millimeter. I want to see that because I want to see how that rear projection does with that transfer as opposed to a digital. Because I do think there's there's something with either contrast ratio we sort of brought up before. There's something that made it feel flat and matte and matte-ish to me. I'm interested in the technique you're describing. I would love to see what we could do with a back with that sort of back projection stuff today because i bet you it's nuts um i don't know i just again that's we're getting into the weeds here and we should move on yeah yeah so uh, again so we've got that interesting anthropopo uh, sort of you know uh trip to africa at the beginning we've got the second sort of beautiful dance of space with uh, dr floyd going to the moon the third act with hal kind of is the closest that i think you have to an action movie you know with like uh with them with um uh dr Flo uh, uh, uh bowman trying to rescue uh hal i thought that was kind of an extraordinary sequence and, and i remember seeing that in the theater for the first time and the silence is what struck me <laughs> and then the fourth sequence this is the, the i really want to touch on this sequence a lot because i think it actually goes again into your book a little bit um because the journey it, it's obviously 
psychedelic in some way. Like the, the famous story is John Lennon had a sitting, uh, had a, he bought a, a sitting ticket for this film uh, for an entire year. <laughs> and, his, and, he, and he apparently would go in after concerts and stuff and he was just like, I just want to zone out and watch this movie. Mm-hmm. And the interesting uh, just side note about this movie is it actually didn't do that well. You know, if you hear uh, Brent talking about like it was an, a mostly empty theater. But uh, what started happening is that hippies started going to the movies and started dropping acid. And apparently... Uh, there's this thing where you could time the acid just right so that as soon as you got to the the the, the landing on Jupiter, the the acid would kick in, and and that's what actually survived, made the movie survive. And it and it made, um, I mean, it cost ten million dollars, and it made I think in the vicinity of forty million because <laughs> of hippies going to the movie to like drop acid and watch the movie. Thanks, hallucinogens. Yeah, I'm curious. Because the, essentially what happens in this fourth act is uh, Bowman, is, you know, he, 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 he pushes through how, uh, the, the, the threat of Hal and he travels to Jupiter and the monolith is there on Jupiter. But uh, I was reading your book and your chapter on Jupiter and like, you know, the gaseous planet and, and how to like w- what the impression of like traveling through into the Jupiter atmosphere might be like. And I wondered what you think about the way it's represented in this film, both in terms of the slit screens technique, the, you know, the, the sort of lights flying at you, but also when it's kind of like flying across Jupiter and you get these like weird planets and, and you know, this weird feeling. I, I wonder what you thought about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Going, going back to kind of the approach to Jupiter, yeah. um, you know, the image of Jupiter at that time, we only had images that were based on Earth. So telescopes looking at Jupiter. Right. Um, since then, there have been many probes that have either flown by or orbited around Jupiter that have uh, so our, our our understanding of how Jupiter appears has changed mm-hmm. uh, very dramatically and and even now it's changing so um, there was there's a probe uh, it was launched in 2011 and um, is that New Horizon uh, this one's Juno so oh, there's yeah. also okay. yeah New Horizons was the one that flew by Pluto yeah um, this is the Juno spacecraft which is now in orbit around Jupiter mm-hmm. um, and it's in an orbit which allows it to see the pole regions of Jupiter mm-hmm. and it's completely changed our picture so. So you can think of Jupiter, you know, you, you, you might think of it with these um, bands and zones. So kind of like stripes across it yeah. um, with the, the great red spot being the storm. Um, but if you look at these pictures that are coming back recently from Juno, it's completely amazing. So you have these swirling clouds. Yeah. It looks like, you know, all these fluid dynamics. I mean, it's really like it's really quite amazing. It looks like um, maybe, um, you know, starry night in a way. Yeah. Um, it's this tur- yeah. Turbulence and storms taking place near the poles that we had no idea was there, um, and so uh, the psychedelic experience that comes later—it's—it's uh, it's kind of a wonder to me that we're kind of having that experience, looking at these images of, now. of Jupiter coming yeah. back to us now that we had no idea um, was the case. Yeah, and and the way in which the film kind of the film stock changes, and and like we see colors in different way, and our perception of of re, of what our base understanding of way like optics work suddenly changes and flips around. On Jupiter is one of the characteristics, uh, and I'm going to struggle to remember the planets here. But Jupiter has perpetual storms, or storms that last, you know, like eons. Right? Yeah. So the the Great Red Spot has been around since we've been able to look at Jupiter, mm-hmm. um, and since we would have been able to see it. Um, and so, you know, it changes a little bit in intensity, but really doesn't show signs of dissipating completely. Um, we know of other large storms on other uh, gas giant planets that come and go, um, and so there's obviously smaller smaller storms that are taking place all over Jupiter. 
Um, the, uh, there's a sort of interesting side note. I think in Arthur C. Clarke's book, um, they were going to go to Saturn, um, but but uh, Kubrick decided they'd do Jupiter because he didn't think that they would be able to represent the rings around Saturn mm. in an effective way around that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt, what did you think of like the 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 trip to Jupiter? I I, I came at it uh, again. I. I, I I came at it from a from a bit of a of a naysayery a naysayery play. I feel bad. I'm I'm talking about the things that didn't affect me. Um, the it felt very um like look I I, I uh straight up I've never taken a hallucinogen. I don't do <laughs> drugs. I drink. That's the closest I can I can possibly get. Uh, so when I said that I came back from a party, I was wasted. Um, but. I can't speak to the effect that that sort of has in either expanding your mind or, or sort of at least shifting the way you perceive a thing. Remember, I, the makers of this film hadn't taken any drugs either. Sure, sure. So but it's just the people who no, no, no. see it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Um, I thought, again, it, it must be coming from a just so many films we've seen. And again, I don't want to, I'm going to bring up visual examples that are by far not as meaningful as this, but like if you want to look at even. I guess because I've we just I just did a retrospective uh, uh, with Shelia Evans, comedian actress on all the Marvel movies. We just watched all of them in a row. Uh, So it's seeped into my brain. Um, Ant-Man or Doctor Strange, the way they talk about the 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 subatomic universe and the way they represent that. Plus Doctor Strange with all the sort of like weird, uh, you know, uh, weird psychedelic mirrory alternate dimensiony nonsense things. Mm. Those I felt like were, and again, it's it's a sign of the times of what you have to use for 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 things. But like even when the the trip gets beyond just lights and sort of different color filters over shots of the Grand Canyon, uh, the the and when we get to sort of the bendy part, and when we get to like this like a line of light and down, and you have the the prisms or uh, or they're, they're they're almost like diamond shapes, diamonds in the sky, yeah. um, and then you see I think the monolith goes over it or something like that. Um, that to me, I was like, oh well. Uh, Ant-Man's the subatomic universe like took that straight off it like there it when it got to things like that I was really interested uh, the 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 filters against different landscapes I was like I don't particularly care I love the bend the, what was the technique slit screen slit screen that was amazing I and you know what I you did, my favorite part of this this and what actually I was getting a little bit bored by the okay <laughs> filter 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 but then when you see uh David's eye mm. Uh, and every time it blinks, the filter changes. I was like, that's that's cool. Like, yeah. that's an effective use of what you're trying to do. Um, and then after the, the whole prism thing, I, I guess the, the trippy part of the 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 way David gets into that last fourth act of being in what I'll just call the hotel room. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me was it, it it lost me in the beginning and it got me back by the end mm-hmm. uh so i guess i think it worked it worked for me 50 50 but it also the 50 percent that did work for me is the 50 percent that kind of counts right if that makes it this all goes back to my little bit of like again it, it's it's just a pacing thing for me i think bits can be could be trimmed here right. um but again 68 like come on mm-hmm. like that's insane that this thing existed in the way that it did uh and actually a question the, with uh i don't know how in in your area of expertise or whatnot but like with the type of and we don't really know what type of travel 
is going on with David at that point. But like we've seen a lot of like breaking, I don't know, or breaking or going into scientific rules that we don't understand in like mm-hmm. Interstellar and yeah. like all these other sort of films. Is there any precedent for the kind of visuals that we saw in this film that would even be remotely cognizant? Or is it just like what we're trying to we're trying to get across the emotion, do you feel like? Or do you think yeah, it was based on any science? Yeah, I don't really think there's any known science yeah. that is applying to this. Yeah. But it does remind me a lot. You know, I think that there's a, a common element in a lot of, you know, when you're traveling through a wormhole. For example, in the movie Contact, you're you're kind of it's trying to get across the experience somebody is having that's like very other. Yeah. Um, and so uh, one thing that's similar in those two movies is, you know, you have these this lightscape, the, this apparent motion and things like that. And then you're splicing back to close ups of their face. Yeah. And, like the experience that they're having that is just totally different than anything, you know, obviously that they can handle. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me how similarly we've decided to portray it, even though we have no, idea no clue if, if that could even, ha- you know what? You know, we have no I, we have no evidence that wormholes exist. Yeah. Yeah. We have, you know, some theoretical ideas about them. We don't know what the experience would be like at all. I'm always amazed at the amount of garb, like the amount of information I think I know and I'm wrong based on what has been fed to me through media in my entire life. <laughs> like the, and the reason I asked that weird kind of loaded, basically silly question is because in my head, we've been shown the way these travely things happen very similarly, like you said, so much that I'm like, may- maybe I don't know. But so like, it's odd when 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 we've decided a thing looks like a thing mm-hmm. and, and there's nothing really to back it up. But yeah. that's just what society has chosen. Yeah. And there's also like distortions that we do know about that haven't been explored in film. OK. Um, okay. So like when you're when you're thinking about traveling very close to the speed of light, um, you have relativistic effects, which yeah. are going to affect your field of view. So it's going to narrow your field of view. So everything's going to be condensed into a very small area. You're going to have um, uh, color distortions. Uh, just due to how light coming at you um, uh, changes changes the way you see light um, coming at you, and so um, so this is it's interesting because there's a lot you could do with that um, uh, that I don't think has really been done well. There have mm. been some um, you know simulations of it done for documentary type mm-hmm. things that are very short, um, but it might be interesting to see what that would look like. In yeah, film. I think it was something interesting I, I thought about when I was reading your book and uh, Commander Hadfield uh, was the they're doing a lot of optic uh, uh, studies on the optic nerve uh, mm-hmm. in space and how it tra- changes in space. Um, and I, I was thinking, you know, there's a, a been recent studies about the mantis shrimp, shrimp, and and the actual optics of a, a mantis shrimp and the color of the spectrums that they see. And that's the thing that I was thinking about when I was watching this is that you know the 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 title of the sequence is Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. Infinite. So it's 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 basically trying to visualize the unvisualable, <laughs> the unvisualized this point so he is speculating on science not only on science that doesn't exist at this point but also on on uh art that doesn't exist at this point you know so we don't really understand and i I think that's you know to me that's the again the extraordinary bravery of this film is that pre-1960 you know pre the walk on the moon yeah he is trying to visualize the infinite and and again he uh, coupled with that sort of sense of um of accuracy He's also trying to make something that is profoundly resonant and and using the medium in a way that 
he doesn't think the medium has been used for. So I, I'm kind of, str- I, I think I take all of that context into it. And then when I watch it, I, I admit the first time I watched it, I was like, this is really going on for quite a while. We're seeing a lot of these colors and we just, <laughs> when are we going to land on Jupiter? And what is Jupiter going to look like? But now I kind of watch it and just am absorbed by, by the experience of it all. Mm-hmm. And just going, what an extraordinary sort of attempt to visualize this. And, and again, if you think about Kubrick and you think about 2001, there's no one I think today thinks about science fiction without thinking about this film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the thing that set the tone for everything we do today. Um, and that, that's kind of powerful as well. It's, it's basically imagine someone, you know, you, you know, uh, to bring it to a religious iconography, we all have this impression of what Jesus looked like. You know, he was this white bearded man from Nazareth. Um, and imagine being the first person to draw that image. And now it permutates our culture in every way. And that's what 2001 is. You know, like it is the thing that permutates culture yeah. in every way. I want to I want to uh, amend my initial why I think this might be perceived as slow today thing based off something you just said here, because I think it, it might have uh, it flipped the switch a little bit for me you're like the first time you saw it you're like oh i think this is going on a little long i think that's because conditionally how we're how we're conditioned throughout our lives to experience stories is to a try to figure out what's going on next and just get feel the relatively tone of pacing but if we if we're wondering what's coming up next we have that initial gut reaction of like oh i want to see what's coming up next i want to see what's coming up next And I think once that is alleviated, like if I went back and watched this sequence right now again after having watched it, because I didn't remember much of the minutia of this film or even a lot of the even bigger moments. It's been so long. Um, I think I would actually enjoy it more because I am no longer waiting to see what is happening next. I know what's happening next, and now I can enjoy the journey getting there. Mm. So I think there is a bit of that in there as well. Um, I've seen this movie Many, many times yeah, yeah, yeah. now. So now I see it and I'm just like, oh, yeah. I'm sitting in for the next two hours yeah. and I'm just going to strap in and enjoy the ride. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Um, there we go. So, um, okay, let's get to the final stage. So now, again, you know, there's four parts to this movie. The fourth and final part is obviously the most sort of fantastical. The, the shining. Most, yeah, it's kind of the most shining. Um, what do you... It almost now we we jump away from your 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 academic uh, understanding, I guess maybe unless there's something I'm missing here, and and jump into just the way you feel about this. Mm. <laughs> well, I think you know what I experience mm-hmm. in watching it is, um, you know, I'm letting it take me along for the ride, and I wasn't trying to analyze it too much, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's really capturing for me wonder and awe mm-hmm. and a mystery. Um, and that's, you know, that's similar to with, with any scientific pursuit, like trying to attempt to understand this mystery, but also just appreciating it. Yeah. Um, the not understanding exactly what it is and it not being handed to you directly. I think, I think that's what I like most about it. Um, and so, um, so I think it captured that. Yeah. Uh, Matt, how about you? This is my favorite sequence in the movie. Uh, I love the uh, the the whether I mean, I'm going to call them time jumps, though. I don't think it actually is in the film. You go from David in the pod to David seeing himself standing outside in the bathroom to David seeing himself eating at a dinner table to David seeing himself in a bed 
uh, with the monolith just over him, which is my favorite shot in the movie. Um, and and as this is going on, he's getting incrementally older. And look, you can take that a lot of different ways from you know a lot of different angles. Um, so I love up to the scene where where he sort of like does the point up to the monolith, and the monolith is just there like chilling. Uh, th- I, now I want to ask both of you because I love that, and I'm I'm willing to sort of like go the the mile of just being like let this wash over me not trying to figure out exactly what it means mm-hmm. but then there's the star child the space baby <laughs> thing that's on the bed that eventually comes at earth and again perspective in this movie and just from a visual sense is is all over the place so like the baby could be close and that's why it seems as big as the earth or it could be as big as the earth like you don't really how do both of you feel about that like what do we think that means because i have no idea at all I don't I guess I just was seeing it more from a metaphorical sense of like this potential or this next stage or like maybe even a sense of like a cyclic um, evolution sort of standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think, you know, there's a lot of play with time in this. Oh, and I wanted I wanted to mention in one part he knocks the glass yeah. off yeah. and it shatters. And I think, you know, for me, I was seeing that as a representation of um, there, there's this, a concept in physics which is so intimately tied to time which is entropy mm-hmm. and um, and and physically like breaking a glass is often used as like the representation of an increase in entropy or it, you can think of it as a as roughly like an increasing disorder mm-hmm. um, and so um, uh, in the in the equations that govern how very small things interact with one another, mm-hmm. there's no reason why time should move in one direction or another. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not defined. But when you get a lot of particles together, um, one thing that we always see happening is that entropy is increasing over time. And that's what's thought to um, make time go in one direction, the linear. arrow of yeah. time, make it linear. Um, and so it's, it's a, there's kind of a mystery in that the early universe was very ordered and goes towards this disorder. And that's why we have this directionality to time. Um, and so huh. I, as I was watching that glass break, maybe I'm reading way, no, 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 way no, that's much great. into yeah. it, but watching that glass break, I was, I was thinking about how this was, you know, really dealing with this concept of time moving forward inexorably and the um, evolution that takes place within that. Yeah, and I think I think the thing there, the 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 link to time there is kind of is profoundly extraordinary because it 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 jumps in a way that is entirely perceptual and not um, and not governed by what we understand of time. You know, in a linear sense, mm-hmm. we don't know if he is simply experiencing it through memory or we don't know if he's actually just seeing it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's, it's sort of, gov- uh, this extraordinary thing happens at the end of it when the, when he kind of reaches the end of his time, uh, it, it cycles back to the sort of infancy stage. You know, the, the star baby is a baby. So it's got this infancy sort of aspect, of it, but it looks like him. So I think it's a, it's an extraordinary uh, sequence and I, I love that you brought like a, a an actual uh, mathematical reason for why it might my why it might operate like that. I love this this quote with uh, Arthur C. Clarke meeting Kubrick to uh, to talk about um, the film. 
So Arthur C. Clarke kept a journal of every time he met uh, Stanley Kubrick and he says, join Stanley to discuss plot development, but spend almost all the time arguing about Cantor's transfinite groups. I decide that he's a latent mathematical genius. And, and, and the, thing about, <laughs> uh, the thing about Kubrick um, uh, that's extraordinary is, is that he was a voracious reader. You know, he, uh, if you talk about uh, Dr. Strangelove and the problem of uh, nuclear war and the, the philosophical implications of nuclear war he read every single book on, on that topic um on the topic of 2001 a space odyssey as you kind of just gathered from from meeting arthur c clark here's a director talking about you know you know sort of obscure mathematical problems and and having a debate about it so while i know we kind of reverse engineer genius a little bit we sort of tend to say oh this guy's a genius therefore he must have thought of that um it wouldn't surprise me if if Stanley Kubrick was alive, if he had a conversation about entropy in relation to that broken glass, um, there is a explanation. Again, if you go to Arthur C. Clarke's novel, there is an explanation of the Star Baby, um, which I find profoundly disappointing. <laughs> As most explanations tend to be in these sort of like heady narrative pieces. Yeah, and I, I think uh, to me. Um, the explanation that uh, Clark has in the novel is profoundly disappointing because it's entirely pragmatic. Um, whereas I think the thing about the the visual of it, and again, going back to that concept that Kubrick had of just embracing the visual storytelling is the ending for me is entirely aspirational. It's beautiful. It is this wondrous sense of joy and awe when I see that star baby. I think it's this sort of uh, this next evolutionary leap that I don't quite understand. And we as humans in terms of perception wouldn't understand, but that's what's exciting about it. And that's, you know, in a way the entire film has been playing in in evolutionary epochs so so you know from the dawn of man to the dawn of artificial intelligence to this like other dawn which we don't really understand i think the monolith represents that in some way mm -hmm. the star baby in arthur c clark's novel there's a bigger interplay between geopolitics and what's happening with the uh with the the race to jupiter and you see it a little bit in the in the quest uh, in the uh, Dr. Hayworth's uh, trip to the moon. What's going on on the moon? I don't know. I can't tell you. I Come can't on. tell you. The <laughs> Russians are, yeah. yeah, the Russians and the Americans are basically having a sort of uh, geopolitical spat over how to to... to to read the monolith. And They're being very polite about it too yeah. in this in this scene about uh, staying for a drink. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, if you watch uh, 2010, uh, the year we make contact, that is much more explicit in that film, um, which do features Dr. Hayworth. Uh, it's basically Russians and Americans go back to Jupiter to find the monolith. Uh, and it's much more about the geopolitics. And one of the things is in the book, uh, um, there is a sort of... Uh, a nuclear front to this, um, uh, to, to the, the trip to Jupiter. It's basically like, uh, the Russians get become increasingly more paranoid at, at Americans and Americans become increasingly more paranoid plays into that same idea of like a possible nuclear, um, a standoff. And when the star baby reappears, the star baby basically dissolves those, uh, those satellites out of orbit. And and destroys the 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 you know the the threat of nuclear holocaust and basically transforms it in some way. Now it is I think it's profoundly disappointing. Like yeah. it's not, it's nowhere near as interesting as just seeing the star baby. Like that is a, a sort of incredible image unto itself. And I think any of the geopolitical stuff just becomes pity. And it reminds me of that quote. Um, I think there's an uh, astronaut. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, 
you would probably correct me on this, but 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 you know, he went up to the moon and he real and he, when he saw the moon, uh, saw the Earth from the moon for the first time, he said he suddenly realized how small our conflicts were and how indifferent the universe is to our conflicts. And and I and I kind of I think the the removal of that that sort of geopolitical view makes this more interesting. But I don't know. I mean, like now that you got now that I've kind of given you an explanation again i don't think it's the right one sure it's one it's but this is my question even from a from a from when you are researching and hopefully discovering something it's interesting because i feel like scientific discovery is always and when you when you can get a scientific fact as close as we can get to one right that is seems incredibly exciting Mm -hmm. where i feel like a lot of times narratively Especially when we get to these these sort of uh, what does it all mean? Where do we come from? Things when we are presented with a narrative fact, a lot of times it is it feels disappointing. So have you ever? This is a weird question, but in any research you've ever done, have you ever felt the same sort of disappointment in the actual fact in the in the fact that you might have discovered or learned? Like where you're like you thought it might be more fantastical, but it turns out. Oh, it's just the most logical, most boring sort of type of thing. Yeah, I mean, the closest I can think to that. Um, uh, so I kind of did have one kind of experience where I had like an emotional reaction yeah. to something that I saw, which was I was looking for these new galaxies, right? Um, and so I, I looked back in past data to see if there was any evidence of, um, for example, any gas that would indicate that this group of stars was in fact a galaxy. Mm-hmm. And so I did have an experience where I looked at that image and I saw evidence of the gas and I said this is a new galaxy like I'm the first human yeah. being to look oh. at this and and realize that this is probably the garbage da- galaxy yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not even everybody <laughs> um, and and so that was um you know this amazing experience of discovery um but I, I don't know I guess in the, in the general scheme of things when you're actually like doing this work it's not you know it's not filled with many of these moments it's more like the grinding yeah yeah and I don't think that you know it's I, I guess I, I don't find it disappointing to learn more about things, sure. though. Like, mm-hmm. I think for that, you know, as you learn more about things, it, it becomes more interesting almost in a way. Maybe that's become the, maybe that's because, excuse me, most of those things are like, even if you learn something that feels benign, it's still a stepping stone to learning another thing where like if you learn something like in a narrative, like even the explanation of the of the star baby, mm-hmm. uh, like then you're just like, oh, and it's over. Like mm-hmm. a narrative is obviously different than science scientific research so it's like maybe that's why one is always always leads to sort of something exciting and one because because one is sort of leading continually to more discovery where the other one is just like and like it's the it's done yeah (laughs) i I wonder if uh if if maybe closer to the analogy of of the the geopolitics thing one of the things is we have this obviously uh politicized science now is is this heavy influence of politics and i think maybe one an interesting thing to to ask you about is is have you ever felt the sort of aside from the actual scientific research 
the pol- the politics of the work you're doing or the funding or actually dealing with like the actual logistics of 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 what it is you're doing or you know even if if work you've seen being put out does that ever get sort of frustrating or interesting oh, or does absolutely that, yeah does that I mean ch- funding is like a huge thing like in in the movie contact for example like the con the constant uh, attempt to get funding and yeah. things like that is difficult and so um well you know studying galaxies isn't as politically fraught as you know climate change for yeah. example um I think you know there's there's a lot to that like just trying to navigate the practicality of it yeah um but I do have you know many friends that are do study climate science um and they are experiencing a lot of difficulty with with where you know maybe their funding hasn't been cut but they don't there's an uncertainty about the future which um has been difficult yeah and is the i guess you know is the book in some way kind of uh, um, maybe an attempt to like normalize science in a way or, or to like make science kind of yeah. accessible because we're living in this sort of like anti-science climate right yeah, now. Yeah, so I haven't actually mentioned how the book really came about, yeah. which was um, I was procrastinating on <laughs> writing my thesis. Yes. And uh, I got a call from um, who would eventually be my co-author, Olivia mm-hmm. Kosky, um, and she worked with an organization called Guerrilla Science. Yeah. Um, and so she was looking for astronomers to act as um travel agents mm-hmm. with the intergalactic travel bureau. Yeah. Um, and so what this was, was we'd go to like art fairs or wherever and we'd sit down, we'd decorate it like a travel agency. Yeah. And then we would talk to people about what they enjoyed doing in their everyday life. Um, and we would plan a space vacation. So choose a destination mm-hmm. based on what they like and what they enjoy doing and kind of adapt their human experience into space. Yeah. Uh, and so we had, we were planning many of these vacations. I probably planned like thousands of space vacations <laughs> yeah. for people in, in all sorts of places yeah. um, and, you know, museums and on the street. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. And um, and uh, and so after years of doing this together, which was just a lot of fun, that was how the book came about was we kind of wanted to um, put these into some, you know, repository of experiences yeah. that people could have. Um uh- I have to say the trip to Venus is the most terrifying mm-hmm. thing I've ever, yeah. it, sound, it's just, it's, it sounds extraordinary. You have to read the book on the trip to Venus. And I, I, I'm now though. So with that in mind, do you think a film like 2001 um, has the power to kind of change a viewpoint or it positively influence the public perception of the work you do? I do. I mean, from my own experience being inspired by, um, by film, to study this, I think it's important to expose people to it, and um, and I think all all films are are you know a great way to do that. Um, sci-fi is a great way to do that, um, and in particular, this one being more philosophical, um, I think really captures um, uh, how people are thinking deeply about these questions. So it's almost like ph- the philosophy of it, um, which is uh, I really I really like that aspect to it. Would you are you gonna would you go see it uh, in seventy now that you've seen it? But- would you go see it in in theaters in seventy millimeter this week? Uh, oh yeah. Now that now that you've kind of talked about, I mean, because because we've kind of we've we've leveled our criticism, I think, in two ways on this, which yes. is that it's entirely aspirational. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's a it's a thing to behold. But it's also it's a difficult thing to watch. It's not like other films. Mm-hmm. It is you know, which is why I wanted to really preface the operatic nature of it. You yeah. know, like in this four act structure of it, which is really unusual and you know very definitively defined four acts. It doesn't just bleed into each other, but both of you, do you, do you kind of view the film slightly differently 
having revisited it or or thinking about it that way? Or would, is it just one of those ones you'll just sort of chalk up to, uh, you know, I saw it, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I mean, I'll just, I think for me, it's, it's, it came, it's the the grandparent of of a trillion things i love mm-hmm. and in that sense uh watching it i have a sense of um i guess uh thankfulness or gratitude that it does what it does so well mm-hmm. um i guess what it comes down to for me is I, watching it now as a just like hey i'm going to watch a movie i'm going to throw on 2001 that's not going to work for me mm-hmm. if i get into the headspace of Let's start thinking about what everything really means. This could be still a springboard for me to do that. And as far as even like I, I like I like little minimalist things, too, that my brain does when rewatching a film. And this time around, uh, I I noticed I felt like this was happening. I know it's not really meant to maybe. But then I purposely after I watched this one thing happen, I, I purposely made my brain think this is why this thing is happening as we go through. Every time you see the monolith, a certain like. Oh, yeah, that score. Yeah. Like a very sort of chanty thing happens. I started perceiving those moments as if not as if the film was scored, but as if the monolith was actually making those that that music mm-hmm. every time it was on screen and the characters were actually hearing it. And that to me gave me a little bit more of a like, I don't know, a little bit more of a spark to the entire thing cuz I was like I mean, there's a whole mathematics to music regardless. So like I would not be. And again, this is maybe a little wish for film or wishful thinking, but like I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we ever came across a thing like this, that it was spewing music like or something that felt musical. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I I like it when I can rewatch a film to say that that uh, I can take small moments uh, that I'm perceiving from a different way and make those even more meaningful than before. So in to answer the general question, uh, <laughs> this I'll say it, too slow would watch again. <laughs> uh, that's where I'm going to stand. How about yourself? I would watch it again, but I I want to wait a little while um, to kind of absorb it and uh, forget a little bit. Because I think I had forgotten so much from the previous time that I'd watched it. Um, It really made it a different experience. And I want to forget it and watch it again. (laughs) I don't know how long that's going to take. but Well, from my point of view, I I would highly recommend uh, going to, if there is a 70 millimeter screening uh, available to you, I would highly recommend going to see it. Especially if you haven't seen it before. Um, because I think it's quite a transcendent experience for me. Um, uh, you know, I'll be brief, but I've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm not a religious person, uh, in any way. And, um, yet this film is the closest I can think of to a religious experience or, or, or kind of going to a religious sermon, um, because it's so enigmatic. It's made from one of the masters. It, it has this sort of, um, uh, in a way monolithic stature, uh, in, in my life where, um, not only does, uh, like you said, Matt, it it it, it uh, triggers the things that I love. You know, it is the grandfather of all the things that I love. Um, it is um, a profoundly moving experience for me every time I see it. Um, and you know, to the point where I wanted my son to experience it for the first. You know, like to, it to be one of the first experiences mm-hmm. he saw. Um, I, you know, and he may hate it over time. You know, I'm I'm, I'm fully aware of the the role a parent can play in like actually turning you off material. Um, but I found uh, the more I watch it, the more I deeply fall in love with this film and the more I kind of um, enjoy the 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 sort of uh, abstractness of it and the way uh, it it points to 
cinema as aspirational, um, which I think uh, is something kind of profoundly beautiful. It's, 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 you know, I think it, it, it leads into um, so many things. And, and aside from that, the fact that it is so um, detail oriented, like, I think like the, the point that you made about like, you know, the grind of the work is, is, is kind of unglamorous. I, I feel like the grind of making this film was unglamorous and was reading a lot and thinking a lot and spending a lot of time, but it's all up on screen and so evident. Um, so I'm really uh, uh, pleased that uh, Christopher Nolan is bringing it back. Um, and I think, I think that was actually, um, though uh, I really like Interstellar, I think that was a sort of a note through Interstellar that, I, that was really evident was that Interstellar was really aspirational about humankind's journey through the stars. It was really about us saying, no, we should put aside all the, the sort of um, difficulties we were dealing with in life and be aspirational about like our place in uh, amongst the cosmos. So I, I, it's just I just love man. It, I, I think, um, I think interstellar gets misrepresented a lot because I think that's actually what the film's about. And that scene, you know, with uh, Anne Hathaway saying love is the transcendent quality that the dimension that takes us through is actually what the film is trying to talk about the entire mm -hmm. time. So I kind of love it. And I think, I think it stems from 2001. Oh yeah. Um, so um, I I would highly recommend anyone going to see this. Not not just if you're a film student, not just if you're interested in cinema history, but I think in terms of like it gives you a perspective to think about humanity. And I I, I want to thank you so much uh, for for coming to to actually give us an alternate perspective because you know one of the things that's difficult about this film is like yeah it can be a little boring, it could be a little bit tiresome, <laughs> but it's actually fun to hear a scientist talk about this film and the way it affects them. So I thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it was, it was a great experience to watch it again, to be spurred to watch it again. Yeah. And I would highly recommend everyone reading your book, A Vacation Guide to the Solar System, um, because it, it also taps into that kind of aspirational quality about travel and, and about uh, space travel. And I think, you know, we only need to look at Elon Musk to kind of, to think about the aspirational quality of like wanting to go, no, we're not just having to live here what if we could look at what what if we looked beyond so uh i thank you so much for your time thank yeah. you for joining us for that thanks so much uh jada when when you are not uh coming on to uh film podcast to and <laughs> to to school us in all things scientific uh about science fiction where can folks find you otherwise even uh, you know outside the book outside of everything else not uh, your home address, by so, the way. Yeah. <laughs> where do you live? No, social media or social anything? Social media, websites, yeah. you know, how can I'm, people uh, find the book? <laughs> Jana GRC on pretty much everything. I'm on Twitter. Um, and uh, some exciting news that we didn't mention is that the book has been optioned uh, by Paramount. And ah! so there's a script under development um, being written by um, Jonathan Goldston and John Francis Daly. Oh, so very exciting. Spidey fame. Uh, Shalia Evans, I think, was really excited about John Francis Daly on the podcast. Yes. Because he he's from Freaks and Geeks, right? Yep, yep. So uh, that's exciting. That's great. Congratulations I, on that. You. Are you going to be involved in the production in some way? Uh, yeah, we've been talking um, mainly about science from the scientific aspect sure. of it. But um, that's so cool. That's really cool. That's well. So uh, hopefully, the next epoch of space travel movies will will we we will have heard it here first directly from the author. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we're. And please come back when that when that's uh, when that's out. Yeah, we'll be. To. We'd love to talk with you about it. Um, Shahir. 
when you are not finding uh, borderline religious experiences <laughs> with things that actually are strong enough to maybe start their own religion, and you could say that with sci-fi, it actually has done that, where can folks find you? You can find me at the Church of Scientology. Uh, That's different. Me, That's different. Me, what are those ether t- the the fetuses? I don't know. Uh, you can not find me at the Church of Scientology, <laughs> but you can find me at my website, www.shahirdaud.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D, and um, all my links and to life and work there. Matt, when you are perceiving time either elongated or uh, from from reality, uh, how do you watch movies? <laughs> uh, you can you can find me both existing and not at uh, MatthewKroll.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram or Emperor M-S-K on Twitter. Also, uh, I, I'm going to keep teasing this until I can talk about it. Exciting announcement coming up soon. Can't tell you about it. That's all I'll say. And of course, if you are interested in anything film, science, anything anything we've talked about 2001, any other film, if you want to request a film, please email us at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at onlymoviepod on Twitter. Also, if you got some stars to spare on iTunes, we love uh, getting as many as you are willing to give us there. Write us a review there. Those are the things we check the most. Uh, this has been the only podcast about 2001, A Space Odyssey. Nobody's talking about this uh, Jana, thank you so much thanks. for coming on. Thanks for having me. Super fun and we will uh all you'll you'll hear us anyway you'll hear us next week uh you'll, if if time is actually linear you'll hear us <laughs> next week if not you might have already heard us <laughs> we'll see well maybe but, I, I was gonna say bye bye but that's just two words repeated you can't even say them backwards <gasps> <laughs> you just did yeah there you go zing bye bye <laughs>